Welcome back to the 169th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including one interesting Supreme Court case that has gotten a lot of attention from a different assortment of people. A article talking about how people are going to regret ousting Kevin McCarthy from both sides of the aisle. And a final article talking about how you will feel and how you should feel after your next COVID shot. And of course, we'll end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump into our daily debate. Have we moved past the argument between negative and positive rights? Is it the government's job to protect against violations of your rights or to guarantee your rights? I mean, it's a really simple question, or at least on the surface it appears to be, but it has a very, very, very historied conversation behind it, and it really defines what the role of the state is, which is something that I think we should always be evaluating, especially as times change and new technologies come about. We can never stay stagnant with our old view, but we can never go too far towards a system that really says that it is the end-all, be-all of what you're allowed to do. I think it's an important conversation, and maybe we should have that one again. I feel like it's kind of fallen in the background. It was really present during the you know, late 60s, early 80s. Um, yes, I know those are two different decades, but I'm saying during those times it was really present, maybe a little bit going into the Internet age because there was a conversation about what the government should do and how it should be involved in the Internet. But it's a really important question, and I think we should really focus on it more nowadays, and I want to hear your guys' opinion down in the comment section. All right, let's jump to our first article that comes from The New Republic. The surprise argument that could shape America's consumer watchdog agency. So, if you haven't heard, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is currently in the Supreme Court going against some of the payday loan industry uh, lawyers and things of that nature. And there's this argument about how their funds are appropriated and if it's actually constitutional to have the system or the appropriation of their funds done in the manner that it is done. And this is something that it's, I wouldn't say it's like the end of the world, most important conversation we're going to have, but it kind of does go back and speak to the role of government and the different branches of those governments separately. And that's why I thought it was a really interesting case because you have a few different perspectives from some of the justices, but even some of the conservative justices are coming along and agreeing with the liberal justices. But as a person who is not a lawyer and whose legal analysis is very superficial, it's very on the top level, I'm going to read through the article and then we can try to develop opinions and ideas from there. Quote, the Supreme Court's oral arguments in Consumer Finance Protection Bureau versus Community Finance Services Association of America fell along familiar lines. One side said it had the weight of text and historical practice dating back to the early republic behind its legal reasoning. The other side offered a mostly policy-based argument for its position, asking the justices to read something into the Constitution that wasn't explicitly there. The only twist was which side was making which argument. So what they're kind of hinting at here, I'll make it brief. 
normally the more conservative, uh, I'm going to use that term even though uh, you could say originalist justices, normally they argue that, okay, what does the Constitution say? Take it as we can. If you can you know, apply it to modern times, great. If not, may have a close approximation. And then there's the more liberal side, which reads into the Constitution to see where this would stand, try to have an understanding of how it would apply in modern times, and then you know, extrapolate an extra right or two based on something that the Constitution said, not directly on what the Constitution said. That's what they're kind of hinting at here. So, quote, the only twist was which side was making the argument. At issue is whether the funding structure of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, or CFPB, is unconstitutional. The payday lending industry, backed by a variety of other business groups and the bulk of the conservative legal movement, says Congress violated the separation of powers by exempting the agency from Capitol Hill's annual budget request. The CFPB, which regulates a wide range of consumer financial products, says its funding system is perfectly acceptable under the Constitution's Appropriations Clause, end quote. So we'll get into actually the idea or the reason that one side believes one thing here in a second. There's a very interesting quote that can illuminate things. But notice that when they're talking about the argument here, it's not so much that is the agency itself unconstitutional? That's not what this is about. If you hear any framing, which I've heard one or two framings about this, that, oh, no, this is actually an attempt to end the CFPB altogether because it's unconstitutional. That's what they brought it to the Supreme Court for. Or it's a way to say that their goal, the way that they're going about their goal, is unconstitutional. No, 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 that's not the argument. It's the funding structure behind the agency. And that's a very important distinction because it actually sets a precedent going forward. That's why it's actually made it up to the Supreme Court, because it sets up a, pre- uh, a precedent that if Congress can say, OK, each year you will get this amount of money as a cap and it will be a, uh, inflation adjusted. So it will change over time, but it will never go higher than the uh, if it's six hundred thousand one year and then inflation happens and it becomes 6100 Essentially, it has the same buying power. It has the same amount of money on hand, or at least the same amount of money that would be able to buy the exact same services and pay the workers the same wages and things like that. So the question is, can Congress just set this out and not touch it and let it keep going, or should there be direct oversight over it every single year? And there are a few different arguments on either side that justify their thinking. I want to at least read one quote, and then maybe we can dive into those opinions of the different sides a little bit more. Quote, The text of the Constitution shows that when the framers wanted to limit Congress's appropriation authority, they did so expressly, Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelager said, who represents the federal government, told the justices in her opening statement. And while the framers restricted appropriations for the Army to two years, they applied no similar limits on appropriations for any other agency. So what she's saying is in the text of the Constitution, it doesn't say that Congress has to deal with it every single year. It just says that Congress has to set appropriations for it. And if that's appropriations for 50 years, 
then that's fine. The only thing that can't be funded that way is the army. And there's the argument, oh, well, the founders, the framers of our Constitution didn't want there to be a standing army that could be used as a cudgel to suppress the people and things of that nature. So, but it's it's interesting because there is a fundamental question that underlies that, in my opinion, which is, so could Congress just say you're funded with this amount of money till the end of time? And that's probably why some conservatives have a issue with that co- sort of precedent, because obviously if the people in the Congress were so angry with the decision, they could go and overturn it, they could dissolve the agency, they could adjust the appropriations after the fact, even if the previous Congress had set that up in infinitum, the funding for that company. But remember, it is really hard, sorry, the company, the agency, but there are lots of you know, historical examples of giving the people something, creating something, and having a really hard time appealing it when repealing it when it comes to government. It can be really hard to take something away once it's given. So not saying that in the constitutional sense, not saying in the legal sense that there isn't a remedy to the problem, but in a practical sense, it is hard to, you know, limit the power of agencies and so on and so forth. So maybe that's why conservatives are a little bit more eager to say, no, no, this type of appropriation should not be okay. Because if this becomes standardized, then we could just set a budget limit of a billion dollars for any agency we so chose, and they could just go on their merry way. In in theory, the Congress would have very limited power to reform it or at least interject and say, no, 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 you need to go forward with this policy. Because imagine, appropriations is also a bargaining chip. You probably think about the backroom deals where it's like, oh, can you give us this? Uh, Yeah, well, we can, uh, if you pursue this policy, if you put this at the top of your agenda, we can actually appropriate a little bit more money for it, so on and so forth. These sort of backroom negotiations can actually determine the path to some degree of the agencies. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying that it actually happens. I don't know. But my assumption would be, just like any negotiation, to get more money, there's going to be things that you have to give up in order to get that extra funding from the Congress. So that's why this could be really you know, hard to justify from a conservative point of view who see agencies as bloated and continually growing and going past their mandate. But also, there's the argument that I just laid out, which is, oh, well, these agencies, they come back when it's appropriations times, they have arguments with different legislators, with the congressmen, with the senators. They have a, a battle about, hey, well, I'll give you this, or we can assure that this priority of yours is satisfied if you give us a little bit more appropriations. That was one of the arguments that the... Uh, initial Congress, when they were making the uh, CFPB, that we don't want them to become institutionally captured. We don't want them to have to be subject to the whims of a different House majority or minority or Senate leader, because we want them to be independent and serve their function devoid of the political party that's in power. And that's one of the arguments that they gave for giving this floating total that is adjusted for inflation so that we don't have to keep going back and doing this knick-knack, oh, what do you need? Okay, what can we get for blah, blah, blah. We don't need to do the whole negotiating. The money is set. They will do their job, and they're 
kind of detached from partisan politics in theory. In actuality, it's always really hard to be detached from, you know, partisan politics. And also, if you're part of an agency that is directly meant to protect consumers against uh, big business or, you know, practices that would be perceived as predatory, then you you could argue that you're going to have people that are a little bit more okay with government involvement in people's lives working there. Uh, not always. There might be the one rebel inside who's like, oh, we need to destroy or limit this agency from the inside. But a lot of those people are going to be okay with propagating their job, and that leads to a certain worldview that government involvement in the people's lives is actually important, necessary, and good. And that worldview does tend to be on one side of the aisle rather than the other. But there are, of course, the people on both sides of the aisle that want to use the state to their own ends, and they're completely okay with the state growing and being involved in the people's lives as long as it serves their more specific worldview. So maybe that argument doesn't necessarily hold true, but I, I think it it holds a little bit of water when you do some actual critical analysis. But my point here is, this is going back and forth. We've laid out some of the arguments as to why the, the appropriations should be done the way it is. We've done a little bit of analysis of one side, of why the Constitution doesn't actually say that it has to be a yearly or every other year process for appropriations. And there was an interesting argument by Brett Kavanaugh saying, well, okay, even if the Constitution was to lay out that they have to be able to change things, and you're saying that because they have a floating total and an appropriation total of $600 million in this case a year, then why don't you just have Congress change it? It doesn't mean that it's outside the reach of Congress. It doesn't mean that there's no authority over it. Congress could just change the total that they give them. So they're still not exempt totally from the appropriations process. They have just been guaranteed a certain sum that could be changed in the future and therefore would become a part of the appropriations process again. So those are a few different sides of the argument. You know, the three conservative justices who are really coming down hardline on this one, you know, uh, we're talking about Alito, we're talking about Gorsuch, we're talking about Clarence Thomas. Uh, they're, they're, they've been playing their cards a little close to the chest. They haven't been giving out their opinions so much, so we'll see where they actually come down on this. But for the most part, they're against this perpetual kind of funding because I, if I had to guess, beyond the Constitution itself, which... Uh, doesn't necessarily give any direct quote that it can't be perpetual, but they may find it in the, except for the army, they may find their arguments somewhere in that army clause, but then that wouldn't be originalism. So I doubt they would go that route, but they probably oppose it on a conservative level of no, we should not have perpetual funding for agencies because we need to be able to reform them, check them, question them every single year. That'd be my guess, but I also don't know any of them personally, and they're a lot smarter than me, so maybe they have a better reason than that. I mean, they are on the Supreme Court for a reason. All right, so let's jump to our second article that comes from the Washington Examiner. Democrats will regret ousting Kevin McCarthy. So when I first read this headline, I was like, Really? Really, will they? Will the Democrats regret it? If anything, maybe the eight congressmen in the Republican Party will regret it. Even then, I highly doubt it because they are 
showing their power, the force that they have, the influence that they have within the party and within the system. And if anything, that's going to actually benefit them going forward because people are going to be afraid to cross them and they're going to make sure, at least in the process of picking a new speaker, that their grievances are listened to. Otherwise, it could just hold them up again. And then who knows? We could have no speaker. We could have Hakeem Jeffries as speaker. I don't know. I mean, it'd be really interesting next few months. But when I first read this headline, I was like, whoa, whoa, okay, hold on. Let's see where they are going here. And while I don't 100% agree with everything that this article says, I do at least want to listen to what they have to say and bring it to you guys, because I think it's an interesting point of view. I want you to hear it. Quote, The move came as somewhat of a surprise, as what started as a small minority of disgruntled populace in the Republican wing quickly turned into the first removal of a House Speaker in the nation's history on a motion to vacate led by his own party, no less. Now, the Republican Party must work through this disarray with scarcely more than a month to pass a new funding bill. But as much as this is obviously bad for the Republican Party and the country, this is particularly a poor move by Democrats, one that will likely hurt them in the long run. While this vote was more than mere skinnifertifer, I don't know how to pronounce that word, not going to try, at the Republican Civil War, as Rep. Ted Leo, Democrat of California, described it, it was a short-sighted move. It is unclear why Democrats would want this to have happened at all, end quote. So he's kind of being mysterious, you know, the first paragraph, oh, let me get bait you a little bit, let me... Let me see if I can get you curious about why I'm saying the Democrats, they should have done this move whatsoever. I don't care. We're going to jump straight into the context beyond it. But I did think it was at least important to give all of that for the people who aren't updated on the situation. Quote, currently, the interim speaker is Rep. Patrick McHenry, a man who was never voted for a tax increase in his 10-year career. Hardly a sign that he has the markings of a dealmaker. Who will replace him is an even greater concern for Democrats. Gates and company are now the dog that caught the car, but absurdly have no plan how to drive it. That can only mean what likely follows their small rebellion are decisions made by fingers in the wind. Rep. Jim Jordan, the hard-right former Freedom Caucus chairman from Ohio, might be the next to take the most powerful seat in the House, according to some. Rep. Steve Calise is apparently also in the running. Blah, 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 blah. He goes on to speak. So what he's trying to get at here is the choices for speaker now are less moderate, are less willing to make deals, are less principled, sorry, are more principled than Kevin McCarthy. And guess what you need as the Speaker of the House in order to work with both parties? Somebody who's willing to be flexible, someone who is a little bit less principled, not in a bad way, but a person that is more practical, like Kevin McCarthy, willing to make a deal and sees the institution as what needs to be protected rather than the principles of the party. And now you have a whole bunch of people who really hold to those Republican lines a little bit more in line for the speakership. So it's going to come back and bite them. That's what the author's trying to get at. If you wanted somebody that's actually going to work with you, that's going to try to pass the debt ceiling bill with you, that's going to try to stop the government shutdown with you, you may have kicked out the person who actually is willing to do that. Now, let's be clear. 
I think Jordan, though he is a little bit more hard line, would be willing to do it. I think Scalise has a respect for the institution and the people there. Yeah, I mean, he literally got shot while at a baseball game for the house, or sorry, for at a practice for the house, and he has relations with people all across the aisle. So he may not be, you know, super hardline, but he definitely has been in the past. And McHenry, I mean, okay, yes, he has not, he has not once in 10 years in that building voted for a tax increase. If you want to work with somebody who is going to be willing to at least listen to you on certain issues, be able to negotiate, the person that didn't vote for any tax increases is not the man because you're probably going to propose one and he's just going to straight shoot it down and you're probably going to feel aggrieved and you're not going to get anything done. So they may have shot themselves in the foot here. They may have gotten rid of one of the only people in the current Republican Party that has enough clout, enough donor money coming in, and enough power to raise money for the other members, and is also willing to work with the Democrats. Now, is that 100% true? Not necessarily. I mean, you know, there are probably lots of people on the DL that we don't know, but McCarthy had just enough clout that he could, you know, wield it a little bit, but he also was not well known enough by the populace that he could define himself. So we'll see how this plays out. We will see if they actually did end up shooting themselves in the foot. I think the answer is yes, they did to some degree, but I also don't want to put it past the next speaker that they may will be willing to work with the Democrats because when you get to that point, when you become speaker of the House, it's not Speaker of the Republican House. It's not Speaker of the Democratic House, even though it, you're elected by your own caucus, your own connections there, the Republican Party, if they're in the majority, sure. And you're supposed to represent their interests, no doubt. Your job goes beyond just one side. You are the Speaker of the entire House, and that has been overly politicized over the course of our lifetimes and even before that. So I think maybe the office will shape some people's opinions, will change the way they look at things, but probably not enough. So we'll see. This author is right, but he may not be 100% right, and that's why I kind of disagree with this one. All right, let's jump into an article from the New York Times. So, and okay, I want to at least preface this by saying uh, this could be a really bad segment. YouTube may not like it whatsoever. I don't care. I think this is one that's crucial, and I think it really shows some of the, I don't want to say hypocrisy, it shows some of the BS that is being driven into the brains of the populace. The headline reads, feeling terrible after your COVID shot? Then it's probably working. So, there's a new study that has come out that describes how people's reactions to getting a COVID shot determines how many antibodies they have in order to protect them against a possible COVID infection. The new study is one that has been going on for quite some time, and I don't know if it's necessarily to imply or create consent among the people that, oh, yeah, you feel terrible after your COVID shot, and that's a dissuading factor. Well, actually, if you feel terrible... It's a good thing because it means that the COVID shot is doing its job. I'm not trying to make it sound like a conspiracy theory. It is just sad that the world we live in, the world and ecosystem that I listen to, has 
made me at least have to raise that question. And I say not even just that I've listened to, just in general, there has been a skepticism of authority throughout my lifetime, especially after a lot of the movements that happened when I was, you know, to around 10 years old. And then a lot of the overreach has been happening throughout the latter half of my lifetime. So, of course, people who are already inclined to not like authority, such as myself, are going to be skeptical when you hear something like this coming from the newspaper of record, who in the past has definitely been a little bit more favorable to one point of view or the other, who I've talked about in articles has active relations and actively works with government officials in order to get scoops, and they build these good relationships with them so that they can get the new information, you know, get the new lead, get a new story whenever something happens. But, you know, that's just me prefacing with how I come at this and how, you know, skeptical of authority I am. Let's actually go through what the article says before, you know, because I'm kind of astroturfing here and that's not necessarily fair. Quote, a new study has an encouraging message for Americans who shy away from COVID shots because of the worries about side effects. The chills, fatigue, headache, and malaise that can follow vaccination may be signs of a vigorous immune response. People who had those side effects after the second dose of a COVID vaccine had a, more antibodies against the coronavirus at one month and six months after the shot compared to those who did not have symptoms, according to the new study. Increases in skin temperature and heart rate also signaled higher antibody levels, end quote. So, hey, you know, this is, this is great. That feeling that you get where you feel really icky afterwards and, you know, it's not necessarily the most fun of things, but it shows that you're probably going to have higher resistance to any variants or strains that come your way because your body is has a strong immune system or at least the immune system is strong enough to fight it off very quickly and it has a very large response. I mean, kind of makes a little bit of intuitive sense. If you feel like crap after being vaccinated and you start having a few symptoms, it means your body's acknowledging that the virus is there and it's launching a full-scale attack. I guess the opposite logic could be true. If you don't show any symptoms, then it could mean that, or you could logically deduce that you're, oh, your body's just so good at fighting the vaccine that it doesn't take much energy and it doesn't cause your body to have to heat up or you know have any of those fatigue symptoms or anything like that. I guess both of those could be logically consistent from a layman's point of view who doesn't necessarily understand how the immune system works properly. And yes, I am one of those laymen. But this is where I get really, really, I don't want to say scared, but annoyed uh, in the next paragraph that I'm going to read to you. Quote, the relative increase in antibody levels among those who experience side effects was small and doesn't mean that people without symptoms don't muster a strong immune response, experts say. Lack of side effects should not be taken as a sign that the vaccine's not working, said Alessandro Essetti, a co-director of the La Hula Institute of Immunology Center for Vaccine Innovation, who was not involved in the work. An earlier study found that 98% of people who felt no ill effects still produced copious amounts of antibodies compared with 99% of those who had localized symptoms or worse. Okay, so you see what they just did their nice little sleight of hand. Well, just because you don't have a major response doesn't mean that the vaccine's not working. And then they cite the data. If you don't have a, a huge response, 
still 98% of people still produce copious amounts of antibodies. And then it's 99% for people that they have a severe reaction or a large sort of fatigue session or malaise, as they describe it here, or those headaches that you may experience or that temperature rise. That's what I got when I had my COVID shot, the Johnson & Johnson one. I had a terrible tear. I was so hot for the night afterwards. But you see what they're doing here. Oh, well, just because you don't get the symptoms doesn't mean that you're going to not have the antibodies. But also, if you do get the shot and you have those symptoms, it also means that you're going to have a lot of antibodies. Or we could just acknowledge that if you get the shot, you're probably going to have, for the most part, a lot of antibodies. I mean, 1% change between 98% and 99% of the people having copious amounts of antibodies is not that much. This is literally just a piece that's meant to justify getting the shot and telling people, oh, don't worry about it. Even though within the article itself, it identifies that the people that don't have those symptoms also have copious amount of, uh, amounts of antibodies. And they're saying, like, uh, it's so frustrating because it is literally just saying, ah, vaccine is good. If you don't get the response, you'll be fine. If you do get the response, oh, just take it as a sign. They're literally just saying, take it as a sign that you'll be fine. Well, the whole point of the vaccine is that yeah, you'll be fine. So whether you have the symptoms or not, it shouldn't necessarily matter. And then what they're trying to do with that is say, okay, but there's this deterrent, which is the are these terrible systems. People don't want to feel temporary pain in order for the long-term gain. So they're just trying to say, well, actually take that temporary pain as a way of justifying the shot because you're going to have a copious amount of antibodies. Well, Anybody that gets the shot is probably going to have copious amount of antibodies to prepare them to fight off a COVID infection. And if people don't want to feel that short-term pain, while you can astroturf it all you want, while you can put down all these arguments, while you can try to justify it and say that, no, actually, this is a good thing, it's still a deterrent. If people don't want to get it, people aren't going to get it. So stop trying to make people feel better if they have a bad response to the COVID vaccine and say that it's okay. Because guess what? The people that didn't get the bad response, they're just as okay. So guess what? It's still a deterrent. It's not like, because you have to make it a risk, uh, a benefit and risk analysis. If you were to say that actually if you have those severe symptoms, it's not 1% more likely that you'll have a copious amount of antibodies. No, 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 no. It is a 150% chance that you'll have more copious antibodies. Actually, it means that you'll handle the virus even better. Then you could actually make a risk-benefit analysis and really justify the side effects of having a bad reaction. But no, the difference is so small. They're literally just trying to say, it's okay, get your shot. And it's so frustrating. And I wish I could articulate myself a little bit better on this one. But I think I got my point across. And I think you understand where I'm coming from. And maybe it's just because I'm so worked up out of emotion that I can't coherently lay it out exactly as I wish I could. All right, let's jump to our daily delight that comes from Laughing Squid. Panda mom lovingly cuddles cub before and after checkup. So every mom has a very, very special job. They have one very special job that they take very, very seriously. Cuddles. Quote, a panda mom at the Chidong, and I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing it, research base of giant panda breeding in Sichuan, China, 
lovingly cuddled her baby before and after the cub went for a checkup, end quote. But the hard part for the mom was actually letting go before the checkup. Quote, according to the caretakers, it was very difficult to separate the two. In fact, they had to trick her to let go of the cub, end quote. And if you want to see any of the cute photos of these, this mama and this baby cuddling, or you want to read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button where you can find them. Also down there, there's a link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, and Podvine. Yes, Google Podcasts is going away here soon, but it will be there until the service is gone. And also the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip, where I post a Twitter tirade every Tuesday and Thursday. Thanks for joining me, and with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe, don't die.